Hello, Mississippi. It's Wednesday, and welcome to Southern Remedy, your source of accurate medical information. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, and today we will be taking your calls on gastrointestinal problems. And I'm Dr. Alan Harris. Today we have a special guest, a gastroenterologist, who will be helping answer your questions on reflux, irritable bowel syndrome, colitis, or any other abdominal issues you may have. Mm, that's right. You can send us an email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org or give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's also 1-877-672-7464, and the lines are open now. We'll be right back after the news. an MPB Think Radio podcast. mpbonline.org. MPB Think Radio. Welcome back to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. We appreciate you listening this morning. I would like to give the state of Mississippi's health address, my annual address. The state of our health is not good and we are working on it all the latest kids count data is out if you have not seen that data you can go to kids count uh, online google them up and you'll see the mississippi kids data and it's really problematic we still have the ongoing obesity epidemic and the like and we'll talk about that on other shows but we still got a lot of work to do and we appreciate all the help you folks for regular Southern Remedy listeners are doing in that regard. We are delighted today to have a special guest here with us. Yeah, that's right. We've got Dr. Jane Claire Williams here with us, um, who is a gastroenterologist in town. She was um, formerly at UMC, was a chief resident back on this show a long time ago. Um, Jane Claire, glad you're here with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So Jane Claire uh, was at UMC, did her medical school and residency there, chief residency, and went off to Baylor and has a specialist in gastroenterology. And what is gastroenterology? What is that a specialty of? Gastroenterology is a specialty um, of the GI tract. So we take care of people who have problems anywhere from their mouth to their anus and in between. So stomachs, colon, small bowel, um, pancreas also, as well as liver problems. Wow. So that's a big, big uh, uh, area to cover. And we're at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And we will be taking your calls on anything gastrointestinal today. That I guess that includes the esophagus and the liver and the gallbladder and the upper and lower uh, GI tract and yes. hemorrhoids and irritable bowel syndrome and all of those things that you've been wanting to hear about. So let's go to our first caller. We have two lines open, but let's go to our first caller, Linda. Hey, Linda. Good morning. Thank you for your call. Thank you. What's on your mind? I wanted to ask about a condition that my daughter has. Probably get hers about once a week or so. Uh huh. Her stomach will feel very, very tight and stick out way full. And she has. Uh, stomach cramps, and uh, real bad suffer, sulfur burns, what she calls sulfur burns. Um, how old is she? She is 36. 36. And how long has this been going on? Uh, quite a while. Okay. Do you have and the same problem? 
Do you have the, Do you have the same problem? I don't. Okay. Well, let's see. Let's see what uh, our gastroenterologist has to say about that problem. Is she having burning in her stomach and esophagus, or where is this burning happening? Um, I, I gather that it's kind of that is. I really don't know. Okay. I know that she just says that she just felt feels awful and just real swollen. Her stomach will be extended. We, g- right. we got it. We got well, it. you know, certainly people who have irritable bowel syndrome can have bloating and abdominal cramping and burning. If her symptoms are primarily upper and she's having some significant pain or any nausea associated with that, she might actually need to have that looked into by a gastroenterologist to look in her stomach with a scope and make sure there's not any um, ulcers or inflammation that might be causing that. Sometimes there can be a bacteria in the stomach that can cause significant pain. Um also, some foods can cause significant bloating, um, especially things that are hard for our body to digest. So you have to think about those things. But if her symptoms are enough that it's interfering with her life, she probably needs to get that checked out. So, Dr. Williams, we've been talking about the different forms of uh, irritable bowel syndrome, the constipation variant and the diarrhea variant. And we get a lot of calls about that problem. Yeah, because um, the s- symptoms are pretty nonspecific. It's hard to tell if this pe- person, you know, without more history um, from the patient herself. But can't irritable bowel syndrome be either one? You can go exactly. back and forth with the diarrhea. So and you can have um, irritable bowel syndrome that's predominantly with diarrhea or predominantly with constipation. But a lot of times people will go back and forth. Um, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, typically always involves pain, and usually people's pain is improved after they have a bowel movement. Another thing that's a tip-off that this might be irritable bowel syndrome is if the symptoms don't awake you from sleep at night, typically um, that is consistent with irritable bowel syndrome. If your symptoms are severe enough that it can wake you up at night, you need to think about other things. I I know there's a broad (laughs) range of complaints with this, but could you give our listeners sort of the general story you get from people who come in with this? What is the... What, what are they usually complaining of, and when does it affect them? What makes it better and what makes it worse? It's typically worse during times of stress. So they'll get um, significant abdominal cramping and pain um, that is improved with the bowel movement, whether that's diarrhea or constipation. Um, typically, they don't have weight loss. But like I said, a lot of times it's, it's definitely associated with times of stress. Very helpful. We'll be talking about your gastrointestinal issue. If you give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring, that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, and we have some lines open. We're also going to get uh, Dr. Williams to tell us about alarm signs for when you need to be seen for GI problems, which is always one of the topics we want to uh, touch on. But let's go to good old Hamilton, Alabama. Hey, Chris. Hey, how y'all doing today? Roll Tide. Hey, there you go. Uh, hey, I tell you what, first let me say I'm an MPB junkie. I listen to y'all all the time. I, I just love, uh, I stay on the road a little bit. but uh, Like us yeah, on Facebook. Great, great programming, and you and Dr. Harris, I really appreciate y'all being on. <laughs> Thank uh, you. This, this may not be exactly on your topic, but I, for the most part, like 95%, uh, I had some weight problems earlier in my life. I'm fixing to be 60 here in a couple of weeks, but for about the last, eight or nine years, I pretty well just all, all red meat and maybe a little a piece of baked chicken every now and then or fish or something like that. I ran a catfish restaurant for a while, but 
uh, is a vegetarian diet healthy? I mean, I eat a lot of you know fiber and stuff like that. I eat oatmeal every morning, and uh, we got you. I, I feel so much better on it. We got you. That's a good question. So we're always getting questions about uh, vegetarian diets, and we're also getting all these gluten enteropathy questions, which I'm sure we've got an expert on that. But what about the vegan thing? It, it can be healthy um, for sure if you if you do it right. Um, so the biggest the biggest thing with any vegetarian diet, if you're not eating animal products, is to make sure that you're getting the right proteins um, because there's there's 20 amino acids and you need all of them to make all the stuff that your body needs to make and you have to get most of it through your diet. Um, and so when you eat animal products, you're you're when you eat meat, you're getting those all those amino acids it's what we call a complete protein which means it has all of those when you eat um, when you don't eat animal products um, plant products have protein in them have the amino acids but no one one item has all of them and so you have to combine your proteins in in a way that you get all the amino acids you need so one good rule of thumb is if you divide them into three groups so nuts is one group um, beans and legumes is another group and then grains is a third group if you combine any two of the three you're getting a complete protein so for instance um, a peanut butter sandwich would be a complete protein because you're getting nuts from peanut butter and grains in the bread or red beans and rice you're getting the beans and the rice um, from each group. So as long as you're doing those kind of things um, and make paying attention to that. So give the that. three groups. Uh, the nuts. Three, uh, nuts. We got lots of those. Yeah. Beans. Two, beans. Uh-huh. Legumes. Um, and then grains. Grains. So, do, uh, Dr. Williams, you see a whole bunch of people on diets. I do. And you see people with eating disorders. Yes. And this whole area is incredibly complex, and we hope that we'll get some calls on some of these eating disorders, but I suspect that we ought to at least just touch on before we go to the next call, and we have a couple of lines open at one eight seven seven mpb ring is this whole gluten enteropathy thing. We we have so many folks in our church that have it that we have a separate wafer stand <laughs> that you go to if you want gluten wafers, which is a breach of you know medical confidentiality because it identifies everybody yeah. in the whole congregation that's got it, but... I always watch, give them my card after the church. Are you serious? Y'all really have that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We've got well, so many people with a problem. A, a gluten allergy is a disease called celiac disease. Um, and it's basically being allergic to gluten, which can be found in a lot of bread products. And gluten hides in a lot of things. Even some medicines have gluten in them. Um, and so, so what is it? Is gluten a, a chemical? or No, gluten um, is basically um, a type of protein thing that's found in lots of different grains, breads. So just another protein. Yeah. And so when you're allergic um, to gluten, this can cause an allergic reaction that can happen in your small bowel, particularly in the duodenum, and which is the first part of the small bowel. And you can have difficulty absorbing foods, difficulty um, absorb, absorbing um, vitamins. You can get low iron and things like that. The way that we diagnose that, the gold standard of diagnosis is by biopsies of that area, but there's also blood tests that we can look for, look at um, to look at look at antibodies to determine if you have celiac disease. So if you're concerned about having gluten enteropathy or gluten problems, give us a call at 1-877-672-7464, and we're going to talk to Paul in Corinth. Hey, Paul. Paul, you with us? Hey, Paul. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you good. How you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? Um, I, I currently have ulcerative colitis, and I've had it about five years. 
and they tested me for the liver disease, and I think I'm getting this right, PFC, pulmonary sclerosing cholangitis. Uh-huh. And I come back positive. Mm-hmm. But my liver enzymes have not been high since that test, and I was curious what are the odds they could have gotten this test wrong. Okay. And I actually not have this liver problem. Okay. All right, so... <clears throat> Thank you for your question, Paul. So just for the, for others to know what we're talking about here, and then I'll um, let Dr. Dr. Williams answer your question specifically. But ulcerative colitis is um, is a condition where it's what it's what it sounds like. You get ulcers basically in your in your colon. Um, they start usually at the anus, the rectum, and then go up, go all the way up through your colon, and um, it can be associated with a liver disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis, which basically means the, um, the the little tiny bile ducts in your liver where the bile goes down into the big duct and, and stored in your gallbladder and goes to your stomach. Sounds like um, a communist plot to me. <laughs> those can get um, scarred and cause problems. And so that's in general what we're talking about. So, Dr. Williams, do you have um, about what his question is about could the test be? Well, typically the way that we diagnose PSC is either by um, a liver biopsy or by an imaging test, like a MRI test looking specifically at the bile ducts. Um, <clears throat> if it was by biopsy, I mean, no test is 100%, so there's always a chance that it could be wrong. Um, and this disease is something that um, typically has a prolonged course, and so it could be that you're just very early in the stage of things if you do have PSC. Um, and that you will go a long time without having any problems. But if you have any concern, I would certainly talk to your doctor about it. And if you want some more information, we can email you a patient info sheet if you'll drop us an email. We'll be right back after this break to take your call. We're at 1-877-672-7464. Southern Remedies back, and we're talking about gastrointestinal problems. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo here with my co-host, Dr. Alan Harris, and our special guest, Dr. Jane Claire Williams, who is a gastroenterologist. I'm very intimidated today, as you can probably hear. I've got these two strong power women and just me in the same room. Pray for me. I need it to be on everybody's prayer list today. And while you're praying, give us a call at one 877 Six seven two seven four six four. With your question, we have open lines. So, Doctor Harris. Yeah. So that last call, um, Paul was on the line talking about PSC, and he wasn't having any symptoms. They told him that his test was positive, but he wasn't having any symptoms. His liver tests were normal. Senator Williams, can we talk a little bit about what's what symptoms um, of of PSC are, and and how you would see if the disease progress? Yeah. So PSC is a disease. Um, like Dr. Harris said, where you get scarring of the bile ducts. That's primary sclerosing cholangitis. Right. And so... Um, Not the Public Service Commission. That's exactly right. That's right. So 
Um, you know, things that will happen as you get blockage of these ducts, the bile that your liver makes will get kind of trapped in the liver, um, especially if you have a blockage in the big duct. And you'll, you can get an elevated bilirubin, which causes jaundice. And jaundice is yellowing of the skin and eyes. Um, a lot of times it's hard, especially in African-Americans, to tell when somebody's jaundiced. But places to look are at the whites of your eyes and under your tongue. Those are some of the first places that you'll see. So that your eyes are yellow when you're jaundiced. Yes. So let's just make sure everybody knows the anatomy. So you've got you've got the mouth, and then you, the food goes down your mouth, down your just long tube, your esophagus, yes. to your stomach. Exactly. And then it goes to the first part of your gut, which is the duodenum. Right. And then into that duodenum drains a bunch of stuff that helps you digest food, right? Exactly. So um, your stomach grinds your food up to the size of a millimeter. It then goes through the, the exit of your stomach into the first part of your small bowel. Your liver makes bile, which helps digest fats, and your pancreas makes lots of enzymes that help to digest proteins and carbohydrates, things like that. And so as the food comes into the small bowel, it's mixed with these digestive juices to put these um, nutrients in a form that your body can absorb them in your small bowel. And the amazing thing is you can actually look down there and look into those ducts with this trick you've got, uh, uh, ERCP, and this other trick you've got, endoscopic ultrasound. That's right. right? So we have some um, interesting techniques. One is ERCP where we use fluoroscopy, which is X-ray. We put some dye within the ducts, the bile ducts and the pancreas duct, and we can see what those look like. If there's any tight spots or abnormalities, we can biopsy those or stretch them out. And then endoscopic ultrasound is a scope test um, where I have a special ultrasound probe on the end of my scope, and I can see through the wall of the gut at the ducts, at the pancreas, um, and take biopsies actually through the wall of the gut. And we can almost look through the uh, radio waves down into (laughs) your gastrointestinal tract and see your problems if you'll give us a call at one 877 Four six four, or we'll just ramble on talking about all these interesting things that uh, you're hearing today. Uh, we're talking about gastrointestinal problems. We've already pretty much touched on irritable bowel syndrome with one of our callers. Uh, we tried to talk a little bit about colitis. Now, the colitis, uh, the, the the PSC, primary sclerosis, whatever it is, that can come with or without colitis, exactly, right? Exactly, yes. So that's a disease of the liver and its bile ducts. Yes. Right. So colitis is a a very common problem, and it can involve all parts of the gut, right? Well, colitis is typically inflammation in the colon. There's different types of colitis. There's inflammatory bowel disease, which is ulcerative colitis. That involves the colon. There's another type of inflammatory bowel disease called Crohn's disease. And Crohn's disease can can affect the gut anywhere from the mouth to the anus. So you can get um, disease in the esophagus and the stomach and the small bowel and the colon. Um, Colitis is a little bit of a general term, um, which can be, you can get colitis from infections. um, You can get colitis from inflammatory bowel disease. Or if you have um, ischemia, which is not enough blood flow to the colon, that can also cause colitis. But ulcerative colitis is the one we're talking about. Okay. So we're talking about colitis. If you have any questions you want answered about colitis or other GI problems, give us a call at 1-877-672- Seven four six four, and let's go to Mike on the road. Hey, Mike. Hey, how are you? We're hanging in there. What about you? Good, very well. Uh, I got a question for uh, 
I don't say it's a disorder. I have never got it checked up. But for some odd reason, when I eat food and it doesn't happen all the time, it'll get stuck and it won't go down. And I thought maybe that may have a problem. And I know in the past, about maybe 15 years ago, I had swallowed some fish bones that got caught up in my esophagus. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Or Yeah, well, you know, that's a great question. And that, that is actually one of the alarm signs that, that show that you need to go and get this checked out for sure. Um, having trouble swallowing, feeling like food or pills get stuck in your throat um, can be an indication of something more serious going on. Um, people can have tight spots, strictures, which are tight spots. Um, or abnormalities in their esophagus, um, and especially things like big hunks of meat or fish bones can get stuck in the esophagus. And as gastroenterologists, that's an indication a lot of times for us to have come in the middle of the night and dig food out of people's esophagus. Ooh. <laughs> so you mean sometimes in the middle of the night you go to the emergency room and somebody's miserable with something hung up in their esophagus? Right. They, if, it, if it won't go down, it can get stuck, and then they can't even handle their own saliva because it won't be won't go down there feeding tube. So the best thing the best thing that can be going on if you have that is just some kind of reflux damage exactly. to your esophagus. Exactly. You can get damage and scarring in your esophagus from reflux, which can cause a tight spot. The worst thing that you always want to think about um, is a cancer. It doesn't sound like that's something you would have going on, especially if this has been going on for a long time, but um, I would suggest seeing a gastroenterologist and having a scope test to get that checked out. Fantastic. Let's go to Robert and Corinth. Hey Robert. Hey. What's your question this morning? Well, I don't really have a question. I have a comment. All right. Um, I was uh, once listening to uh, the People's Pharmacy program that comes on Saturday morning. Yes, sir. That's not this same program, is it? No, no. We're not the People's Pharmacy. We don't do utter cream. <laughs> okay. Well, just tuned in is the reason I, uh, I asked about that. Anyway, I'm concerned syndrome and um, ulcerated colitis and full-blown Crohn's disease, uh, it's a fact that if people suffering from those um, illnesses will eat shredded coconut uh, on a daily basis, that in many, many times all of the symptoms go away. Okay, that that is a very good point and will lead us to a, the discussion we need to have about that. There are a lot of home remedies for inflammatory bowel disease and and gut problems in general because people have been having these since the beginning of history. Uh, pain when they swallow, burping, belching, passing gas, uh, and worse. And so I know that a lot of your patients, certainly a lot of mine, uh, Dr. Williams, come in very, very convinced that certain home remedies are, are uh, helpful. And my usual approach is, and it may not be correct for some of these, definitely not correct for some of these, but I want to get your take on it, is if it if it works and if it's safe and if there are no alarm signs, then I say, fine, you know, go with it. But the problem is so often there are alarm signs being covered up. Exactly. So if you do have alarm signs, which <clears throat> include things like bleeding, weight loss, intractable nausea, which means nausea and vomiting that won't go away. Anything like that really needs to be checked out. Um, I agree. The doctor um, answer to that would be that there's not really any evidence for these things. But I agree if they work and you don't have any alarm signs, I don't feel like there's any harm in using things, especially if they make you feel better. All right. I hope that's helpful. Coconut's good, but 
Mm, I'm not sure it's the best thing for everything. Uh, let's go to Joan at Jackson Airport. Hey, Joan. Hi there. Um, I have a question um, about my grandson, who's 20 years old, and he's been diagnosed with with um, colitis. Um, they did a colonoscopy. Uh, didn't go high enough to determine if it's Crohn's, Crohn's disease or not, but he is a, a cross-country runner at his university, and um, he, he bleeds a lot. He's mm. having a lot of problems with that, and he's on been on a variety of medications. I'm wondering if this is a young age to be diagnosed with that, or is it sort of a typical time for in, an onset of colitis or Crohn's disease? Okay. It, 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 young adults um, around that age, there's kind of two peaks in that in the time frame when people get diagnosed with that, and it's um, people are, are about his age, and um, also sometimes in the 40s and 50s people can be um, diagnosed with these inflammatory bowel disease. It sounds like if he's still having a lot of bleeding and especially diarrhea, that his disease is not under great control and they might have to advance his therapy some. Um, there are some differences that you can see on Crohn's, between Crohn's disease and colitis um, that might have made them think that this was definitely colitis. Typically, it's something that starts at the very bottom and the inflammation goes all the way through the colon um, in a continuous fashion, whereas in comparison, Crohn's disease can be anywhere in the gut and doesn't necessarily have to be all continuous. So without them going into the small bowel, they probably had a good idea of exactly what he had. Plus, they're oftentimes treated in similar manners. So that was Dr. Jane Claire Williams, our gastroenterologist, Dr. Harris, the pulmonary doctor, and little old me, Dr. Rick DeShazer, are here hosting the program today. And it's on gastroenterological problems, and we're taking your calls at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, and we're going to try to get to as many as we can. Let's go to to Teresa in Senatobia. Hey, Teresa. Hi. How are you doing? We're just glad that you called. How can we help? Okay, uh, I've been diagnosed with a hiatal hernia, acid reflux, and I also had a colon resection four years ago, and. Uh, I thought after that colon resection, maybe I'd get through having my nausea, but I have nausea every day of my life, and I've been to a lot of gastrologists, but uh, so far they haven't made a connection. I didn't know. Two questions. I drink a lot of milk. Can that be irritating the situation? A lot of whole milk. And also, my father and my uncle, we always talked about how you could never tell when they were going to get sick. They were always taking bacon soda by the tablespoonfuls and always having some kind of upset stomach. You know, you almost didn't want to go on a trip because they might get sick, and that's the way I am. We got you, and we'll be answering Teresa's call and your call right after this break if you give us a phone call at one 672 this is southern remedy
We're back, Dr. Harris and I, with our special guest, Jane Claire Williams, talking about gastroenterological problems. And you can see I have a loop in my tongue when I say that. So our last caller uh, had hiatal hernia with reflux and a lot of other so-called dyspepsia, just weird GI complaints. So how do you approach and she's had surgery for a hiatal hernia repair. Well, it sounded like she'd had a colon resection, actually, and still has um, a hiatal hernia. Um, so anytime that you have kind of dyspepsia, which is just really another word for belly pain and reflux kind of symptoms, um, you make you want to make sure you see a doctor and get on some – a lot of times we'll use medicines called proton pump inhibitors. That's the Prilosec that you see commercials about and medicines like that that decrease the acid in the stomach. If your acid is completely um, blocked by those medicines and you're still having symptoms, you need to think about things like she said milk can cause problems. She may very well have lactose intolerance. And when you can't digest lactose, then um, you get... Lactose is in milk and dairy products. Exactly. In dairy products, you can get bloating and diarrhea and nausea and things like that. So how can you figure out if you got lactose intolerance yourself? You just stop drinking things with lactose. And if you get better then you know that that's probably the problem. So give us a down the list of stuff with lactose. Cheese? Is- Cheese, yogurt, um, milk, um, ice cream. So how many days do you have to lay off of that? I would say I would try a week at a mm-hmm. time and see. And there are milk products that you can get that are lactose-free. And you can take lactase pills. Exactly, to help digest that lactose. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a problem that a lot of people have. I don't know exactly. the, the epidemiology of it, well, but it's fairly common. Right? Basically, um, humans were not... Um, made to drink cow's milk. And so um, the problem is... You farmers did not hear that from us. We did not say that. So it's not uncommon for people as they age, as they get older, to become lactose um, intolerant. Mm -hmm. And so as babies, we were made to drink our mother's milk, but not necessarily cow's milk. And mm-hmm. I enjoy milk just like anybody else. I love it. And cheese is my favorite food. You and get, I don't have problems with it. You get things around your mouth. When you <laughs> Let's go to Anita and Jackson. Hey, Anita. Hi. What's your question? Um, I struggle from um, a hormonal disease called polycystic ovarian syndrome. And I was just wondering kind of like how that related to digestive issue, digestive issues. I know like I have a hard time digesting carbohydrates and um, certain levels of fat. And I was just wondering if there was any reasons for that. Okay. Well, we'll let you know. Okay. So polycystic ovarian syndrome is um, a condition that oftentimes affects um, young women, women of reproductive age. And um, it's, it's what it sounds like. You have a lot of cysts on your ovaries. Um, it comes along with things like um, diabetes is often associated with it. Um, some other hormonal. Um, Having imp- a lot of hair on yeah, your face. Hirsutism. So, yeah, growing hair where you shouldn't. Being um, obese. Kind of a rounded um, apple shape. Um, like All of a lot which of, is treatable. All of which is treatable. Right. right. And so um, there's not a specific that I know of. Um, Dr. Williams, you may have something to add here that of, of a digestive problem that goes with that. No, I, I haven't ever heard of anything um, digestive problems associated with that. Um, it might be some other underlying problem, especially if you're having trouble with fats. Um, make sure your gallbladder is working good because sometimes, you know, gallbladder con- disease can be associated with obesity and um, women being fertile, so around that age. Right. So it might actually be a gallbladder problem that's hiding that's causing you a, ha- a hard time ha- digesting fats. Yeah, because what we talked about earlier, the bile's job is to is to help break down the fat. And so if, if there's a problem there, then that could be the case. You'd usually have some pain there um, in that kind of 
right side up high under your ribs right there with, um, with that. But sorry, that's probably not all that helpful. Nothing specific, though, with polycystic ovarian needs, syndrome. And, probably needs yeah, to see I, a gastroenterologist. Yeah, you probably just need to see somebody where they can really take yeah. a good history and, and spend spend more time on that. Okay, Rachel, how are you? Hi, doing fine this morning. How are you guys? Okay, how are things in Eureka? Uh, it's Iuka. Oh, Iuka. Yeah, you can tell I was very, raised in Alabama and never learned to read. Very, very cloudy. Yeah, sorry. Iuka. How are things in Iuka? Doing fine. Is that in the Delta? Um, Is that in the Delta? No. No, it's up north. It, you've had a couple callers from Corinth. Yeah. And so it's right next to Corinth. Well, and when people educated in the Alabama schools didn't get geography either. So uh, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still, I've been here. F- almost 15 years now and i'm a mississippian but i'm still not totally educated so what's your question um what it is is that around my menstrual cycle i always have very bad gallbladder pain and it seems to be something that is only associated with my menstrual cycle it comes and goes when i have it and i did of course go online and uh, look around a little bit. There is definitely seems to be a niche of women who do have issues the same gallbladder with their. What, what is your What is your gallbladder pain, Rachel? What What are you feeling with your period? Um, anytime when it is really bad, it does not matter what I eat. It is going to hurt after I eat, and it is in the upper part of my um, abdomen. Uh, under my rib cage. So it's stomach pain. It's in your stomach area. Yes. Okay. Let us let us see what we we can get do with that one. Well, you know, things that are associated with your menstrual cycle. Certainly, if you feel like it's your gallbladder and you're having what we call right upper quadrant pain, you should probably get an ultrasound at the least to look at your gallbladder and make sure you don't have stones. But women can have um, something called endometriosis, where they have little um, pieces of basically uterine tissue that's out in their gut, be outside of their um, outside of their uterus. And they can have little pockets of this in that area. You can also have um, that within your colon. And so you can get significant pain around the time of your menstrual cycle because the hormones um, cause these little areas to get um, basically shed just like a uterus. And so... So most people who have endometriosis that get uh, abdominal complaints, they're usually sort of, I'm asking, usually sort of generalized in the abdomen rather than focused on one area or can they be any pain anywhere in your abdomen or what? Well, I mean, typically with endometriosis, it'll be more lower kind of cramping pain. Um, but endometriosis kind of has a mind of its own and you can get little pieces of uterine tissue outside anywhere within, um, the peritoneum, which is the, basically the encasing of all your guts. And so, um, it's something to consider, especially if it's associated with your menstrual cycle. Right. So the the bottom line is any kind of abdominal discomfort associated with your menstrual cycle probably would be worth checking out exactly. if it's bothering you. Exactly. If it doesn't bother you, it's just part of the whole deal and you can get take an insight or something like yeah, that. Exactly. You're done with it. Okay, good. We're at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. I'm Dr. Rick here with two beautiful and gorgeous ladies, and they're not gonna sue me for sexual harassment, uh, because I have insurance. Uh, going to Yvonne in Vicksburg. Hey Yvonne. Good morning. Good morning. What's on your mind? Thank, thanks for your excellent program. You're sweet. Um, the problem is um, I, I've been feeling extremely tired uh, for the last 
several months, and um, had some blood work done a couple of weeks ago, and uh, said I was anemic. And then she asked me to do um, some stool samples, which I did, and and they were positive. Yes. And um, I'm going to be scheduled for a colonoscopy. Right. How old are you, Yvonne? Seventy. Have you ever had a colonoscopy before? About four years ago, um, which you think he just found a couple of uh, small polyps. Okay. Which um, he removed. But he couldn't complete the colonoscopy because of some scar tissue for some surgery I'd had. Okay. Um, well, it sounds like your doctor is doing the right thing. And so um, you're anemic, which means your red blood cell count is low, um, which, you know, people can have for lots of reasons. It means either you're losing blood or you're not making it properly. Um, and then they ch- checked your stool and there was blood in your stool. So it sounds like you're losing blood there, um, which the next thing to do um, is to is to do a colonoscopy, which they're doing. Um I was asking if you'd had one before. It's recommended as just part of routine screening that people get colonoscopies starting at age 50, unless they have a family history of colon cancer, um, then younger. But um, And we can do those about once every 10 years if everything's normal. If they find something um, like polyps or something, then they may ask you to come back in five years or three years. But um, the fact that you have one four years ago is good, but if they couldn't complete it and get, it's important when they do the colonoscopy to get all the way to the right side of the colon um, to look there. And if it sounds like they couldn't do that. And so you're, you're doing the right thing and getting that test repeated. Yeah. Uh, uh, Dr. Williams, uh, I, I heard a lot of fear uh, in Miss Yvonne's voice and I hear a lot of fear uh, when I talk to patients who have, gastrointestinal bleeding and everybody I see gets a rectal exam uh, at least once a year and a stool for blood and so forth and so on. So I pick this up all the time and people suddenly become petrified and frightened and can't sleep and so forth. Um, It's my opinion that it's a whole new day uh, for people who have polyps and gastrointestinal cancer. That's the worst case scenario uh, and hemorrhoids. We, we can fix all that stuff, right? That's very true. Um, if we catch, especially if we catch polyps and cancer early enough, um, I mean, I diagnose cancer on a weekly basis usually. And if it's, it's early enough in the stage of the cancer, if it hasn't really gone through the wall of the colon, then that can usually be removed with a surgery and you're cured. So the most important part is to get the screening so we can prevent the cancer by taking out the polyps early or find the cancer early so that we can get you surgery um, before it so Yvonne is uh, frightened about getting that uh, conscious sedation or whatever they give. Uh, and what are the risks of having a colonoscopy? I know she has a little bit greater than the normal risk because she's got a stricture or something up there from previous surgery. She does, and just because um, – and, and they, they, they might be able to get to the end of the colon this time. It's different every time. But the risk of um, colonoscopy include bleeding. Perforation, which is a tear or a hole in the lining of the colon, which happens at about one in a thousand patients, um, as well as the complications associated with the anesthesia, breathing trouble, heart trouble. But the risk of all that is very small. We do these all day, every day. Um, we have people that are very good giving those medicines, and um, the endoscopists are very good at what they do. So, Miss Avon, we're putting you on our prayer list. Don't get too, don't hang any crepe yet. It's probably going to be something, even if it's the worst-case scenario, that can be taken care of 
and you'll outrun it like you have everything else. So hang in there and let us know what happened. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. We're at one 672 taking your calls on gastroenterological problems. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. We're driving through your questions today at one 672 7464 with our special guest, Dr. Jane Claire Williams, who practices with GI Associates here in the Jackson area. And they take care of people from all over the state and all over the universe. So let's go to Brenda in Columbus. Hey, Brenda. Uh, hi. I am 56 years old, and I have a complicated health history, um, including metastatic breast cancer, although right now I have no evidence of disease status, have chronic fatigue syndrome, Snedden syndrome, and I'm lactose intolerant. I'm calling specifically about warfarin therapy and how it might have a negative impact on the absorption of nutrients through my intestines. I've read here and there that it might end up causing a nutrient malabsorption syndrome. So I was concerned about that and also symptoms that I've been having with warfarin that have been increased by a new drug that I've started called aromacin with abdominal cramping and bloating. So I guess my questions are how do I promote my nutritional status, how do I look out for my immune functioning, and how do I manage some of these symptoms that just keep getting worse every time I add a medication and even with the probiotics? All right. A good set of questions there. That's actually a set of questions. Well, warfarin, as you know, is a medicine um, that's a blood thinner. Um, <clears throat> it inhibits vitamin K um, so that um, you your blood is thin because you don't make some of the clotting factors. Warfarin has, uh, it, it can have um, interference with multiple medications and multiple medications can interfere with the function of warfarin. I don't know, I haven't heard any um, specific malabsorption problems with warfarin, things that you can think about when you have malabsorption um, are things like infiltrative diseases of the small bowel, celiac disease, um, things like that can cause malabsorption when your gut's not working. But and specifically, I've never heard of that. Um, and, and there's not really a whole lot of, besides GI bleeding caused by warfarin um, because your blood's thin and you have something else going on. I don't know of any GI side effects from the warfarin. It sounds like you might be having some GI side effects from your new medication. Right. So Dr. Harris is all over uh, the medical literature looking for evidence of this. Um, so one thing I was going to say is warfarin interacts, like like Dr. Williams said, with just about everything. And it's okay. You can still take things together. You just... Th- 
when you're on warfarin, Coumadin's the other name for that, is when you have to get your blood checked right. periodically. And so whenever you start a new medicine and you're on warfarin, it's important to just let your doctor know, I started a new medicine so they can monitor your blood test, your INR a little more um, frequently um, just to see if that's going to impact it and, and adjust your dose of your warfarin um, if they need to. So I'm real old and I have never heard of a malabsorption syndrome associated with warfarin. Don't worry about it. Uh, and that we, drug's been around forever. And we, and we should know about it. So it's something else. And probiotics, what's the deal on those? Those, those are good for everything. I they think so. Hair I mean, grow in your head and exactly. all kinds of stuff. Make you beautiful. Yeah. So uh, you can't go wrong with those. I don't think so. Yeah. So let's go to Bess in Memphis. Hey, Bess. Good morning. Thank you, doctors. Uh, I just noticed when I was brushing my teeth, some little raised places on the back of my tongue about the size of a, one is about the size of a pencil eraser. Right. Do you know what that might could be? Yes, ma'am. Those are taste buds. They're part of your uh, olfactory tract that help you taste. The taste and smell are all hooked up together. And uh, what you need to do, like anything that you find on yourself uh, that worries you, is keep looking at it. And if it gets any bigger, let no, somebody know about it. But cancer of the tongue, especially back in the back where you have those little bumps, is pretty unusual. The risk factors for oropharyngeal cancer are smoking uh, and tobacco contact with any of any type or any kind of oral burn, like people who have swallowed a lie as a child. And so uh, if that continues to be a concern to you, have uh, your family uh, doctor or an ENT, ear, nose, and throat doctor, take a look at it. But I don't think you have anything to worry about. People get black tongues when they grow E. coli in their mouth because we have all these kinds of different stuff growing in our mouth, right? And yes. they get yellow tongues. And the what's going on, the reason our ch- tongues change color is because of bacteria growing on them, right? That's true. I mean, you have bacteria all throughout your gut and in your mouth. And so you can have some Pretty strange things happen on occasion. Right. Your so, dentist could help you with that, too. Dentists, yeah, dentists, dentists would will, be great. They're, they're trained at that. Yeah. Sometimes something can just get inflamed and be bigger than usual, and then it'll go away. So right. you're, you're, you, what he says is exactly right. Just keep an eye on it. All right, good. Let's go to Sherry in Oxford. Hey, Sherry. Good morning. Thank you for giving us a call from that wonderful center of the universe. Yeah, I, I agree with that. <laughs> yes, sure. yes. Go Rebels. What's, what's on your mind? Well, I'm just wondering what the long-term effects in your stomach are on taking a baby aspirin long-term. Uh, I have mitral valve regurgitation, a mitral valve prolapse with regurgitation, and my cardiologist has prescribed baby aspirin. But uh, I have also Googled the taking of aspirin long-term, and it sounds like it's, it's uh, not a good thing to do. That's scary, isn't it? Yeah. Well, let's talk about it. Well, aspirin um, and any kind of NSAID, which is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, which includes Aleve, Advil, Motrin, um, BC powders, Goody powders, et cetera, um, can certainly cause, they can cause um, ulcers and bleeding, especially within the stomach and really anywhere in the GI tract. So it's it's certainly safe to take an aspirin every day. If you start to develop any abdominal pain, um, any vomiting where you see blood, any black tarry stools, um, those are alarm signs that you might be having some bleeding in your upper GI tract. But people around the world take a baby aspirin every day and never experience any problems with that. Um, so it's something to be aware of, but I don't think it's anything to really worry about unless you're having symptoms. So what you're saying is the benefit if you have an indication. Not everybody should be doing that, right? Right. If you have an indication for doing that, and, and we'll review those right now, 
uh, uh, then the benefit outweighs, outweighs the, the risk. risk. So it, what are the will, indications? It, major indications would be if you have um, coronary disease, um, if you've ever had a uh, heart attack, um, or if you've had a stroke, those are going to be reasons your doctor's going to put you on an aspirin or the main ones. There's others. But. Or if you're a male doctor, we all take them. So <laughs> let's, let's, uh, let's put the cards where they may be. We're all taking them because uh, you just, unless you have your coronaries looked at, most males have got some kind of coronary. Yeah. And baby aspirin <clears throat> just means an 81 milligram instead of the 325. And, and 81 milligrams for, for prevention is plenty um, in just about every And that helps thing. a little bit decrease the risk of GI bleeding, I think. Just yes. a little bit. Okay. So let's go to Will and Clinton. Hey, Will. Hey, uh, a quick question. I missed the first half of your program. I hope this isn't a repeat thing. Uh, at age 60, uh, just from listening to repeated nagging, I had a lower GI <laughs> on our wellness plan. You must be at my house. <laughs> <laughs> but after uh, after a month of irritated, uh, just digestional problems, no bleeding, no no nausea, no diarrhea. Uh, I went back to the GI people. And they said I had irritable bowel syndrome. Mm-hmm. So now I'm on fiber, probiotics, and multivitamins. Right. Uh, uh, are these probiotics going to cure me? Uh, it depends on how much you paid for them. If you paid $10,000 a piece, there will be a definite cure. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. Patients always think the more expensive a drug is the better it's going to work. And these are cheap, right? Yes, probiotics are cheap. You can buy them over the counter. Um, there's not really any kind of cure for irritable bowel syndrome, but, you know, after a cert- certainly if you had your symptoms after a colonoscopy, they might help kind of get your gut flora back to normal. Or if you've ever had any kind of recent in- GI infection, you can get something called post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome. Usually that's transient and self-limited and will kind of get better on its own with the medications that you're taking. If you'll send us an email at Southern Remedy. Uh, at mpbonline.org or uh, southernremedy.org, we will send you an info sheet that has a lot of good information because irritable bowel syndrome is a very common and big problem. We want to thank you for listening to Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio each Wednesday at 9 and listening again if you only listen to half of the program each Sunday at 5 p.m. for the replay. Southern Remedy is produced by Jenny Wilburn and supported by an unrestricted grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We want to thank our special guest uh, who was here talking about gastroenterological problems, Dr. Williams. And next week we'll be talking about eye problems. Until then, like us on Facebook and thanks for listening. See you next week.